This working? Oh, there we go. When Jeff and I were discussing this series, he asked me uh, how long it had been since I heard a sermon on the end times. And I honestly couldn't remember. Uh, I'm guessing it was a long time ago. And I'm interested, how many of you here have sat in church on a Sunday morning in the last 10 years and heard a sermon on the end times? Put your hand up. Wow, maybe four or five people. How about the last 20 years? A few more? Yeah, not very many. And doesn't that seem strange? For those of you who are old enough to remember, back, you know, in the 70s and 80s, this was a hot topic. You would hear sermons on this subject all the time. And yet it's dropped off in popularity uh, at church. Why do you think that is? Why do you think we don't hear messages on this subject anymore? Too long coming. Okay, well, that's, that's an interesting point. Very controversial. Ah, yeah, it's controversial. People have a lot of passions about this subject and it can get them worked up. Yes. Ah, exactly. It's, it's a scary topic. <clears throat> I, I think that's, that's all true. And, and I think there's one other reason, too. And that is, it's, it's really hard. It, it really is. But I'm going to be talking about this today. Um, why? why? Why am I going to tackle this now when it's, it's not as common anymore? Well, as for those of you who come here regularly, you will know that Jeff over the last year and a half has been working through the book of Mark. And that approach of methodically going through scripture, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse, is very useful because it forces the pastor and the church to engage in those texts which might be uncomfortable or um, you know, difficult or, or really hard. It forces us to go there. And here we are in, in Mark 13, which is probably uncomfortable for some, and it's definitely really hard. Now, if you're here with us today and you're not a Christian or you're a new Christian, you might find that some of the things I talk about today sound pretty weird. Well, they, they, they are. The fact is, these are things we're going to be talking about which are outside of our experience and to a great extent even outside of our comfort zone. But as Christians, we believe that the entire Bible is inspired by God and it's all true, and all of it is applicable to us, uh, even those parts that seem like they're way out there. I should also say that this is a really big topic, and you could spend your lifetime studying it. I only have 20 or 25 minutes, uh, not that I can tell because the clock is gone today, so, uh, <laughs> so I, I'll do the best I can to give us kind of a high-level overview of, of what's involved here. Uh, regarding the tribulation and the second coming of Jesus. But that only talks about part of it. And in two weeks, we're going to end our discussion on Mark 13 on how this all fits with the millennium, the resurrection, judgment, and and tie it up that way. Okay, so Mark 13. Let's start out by doing a quick recap of what Jeff said last week. So as Jeff said People can view this passage, this chapter, in three different ways. 
Um, one is that all the prophecies have already been fulfilled. So all, all that stuff that's talking about you know, the, the, the sun darkening and the moon falling from the sky, that was all imagery that was fulfilled in the first century, uh, after, uh, first century AD. The second view is that none of these prophecies have been fulfilled and it's all for the future. The third view is that there's a combination of both. Some of the prophecies were fulfilled at the destruction of the temple in AD 70 and others point to a, a future fulfillment. Now, I read quite a number of commentaries on this chapter and aside from the fact that they all disagree on the details, most of them seem to agree that, or most of them take the perspective that it's a type C. There is stuff that hasn't been fulfilled and stuff that already has been fulfilled. So what are those verses that people tend to think are still coming in the future? Verse 26 says, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. That hasn't happened. He will send his angels and gather his elect. That hasn't happened. Days of distress unequaled from the beginning and never to be equaled again. Well, possibly. Nation will rise against nation. There will be earthquakes and famines. Possibly. Sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. Is that metaphorical? Is it symbolic? Is it literal? Maybe. The, the fact is the imagery that's given in this chapter is really violent. There's earthquakes, there's wars, there's betrayals, there's an increase in wickedness. And many believe that this is a description of the great tribulation that spoke about in Revelation 7. Now if you haven't heard that word before, the great tribulation is a period of, of horrible distress where disasters are poured out on the earth. Revelation shows us imagery of of hail and fire mixed with blood and poisoned rivers and oceans, plagues, disease and other apocalyptic images. And that would seem to fit into what verse 19 says, days of distress unequaled from the beginning and never to be equaled again. It sounds awful. But the awful time comes with a promise because wherever these things are discussed, it's always discussed in connection with Jesus' return. So no matter how bad things get, Jesus is coming back and he will make them right. But the question comes, how does that all work? Is the tribulation to be taken literally? When is Jesus' return? How does the rapture fit into this? There's a lot of questions. And, and the Bible isn't crystal clear. As you can imagine, there's also a few different ways of, of interpreting this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a, just a, an overview of some of the main ways people view this. First of these is called the pre-tribulation view or, or pre-trib. And this is probably the view that is most common among North American evangelical Christians. The pre-tribulation view is that most of the Mark 13 prophecies are not yet fulfilled. These will be, find their ultimate fulfillment sometime in the future. Uh, Pre-tribbers believe that the tribulation is very literal, it's very real, it's coming, and it will be seven years long. 
And pre-tribulationists also believe that the church will not be part of the tribulation. And this is kind of the key, um, the key doctrine that, that identifies a pre-tribulation. Some of you may have never heard the word rapture before. So I need to explain that. The idea of the rapture is that before the tribulation starts, Jesus comes in secret and takes believers, takes a church out of the earth into heaven, and then the tribulation carries on um, with the rest of humanity. Perhaps you've uh, read the Left Behind books or seen the movies. The premise of the book is right there in the title. It's a story about those who are left behind after believers are raptured. Um, this, is, this is kind of a, the most popular view in Hollywood as well because it's very dramatic. And so I'm gonna play a short clip here uh, from a recent movie that kind of is one filmmaker's view of what this would look like. watch the rest of that movie on, on your own time. The, the sequence would look like this. Um, at some point, Jesus would come, rapture the church, the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation would start, and then would be the second coming of Christ in power to re- redeem the earth, the resurrection, uh, etc. Seems fairly straightforward, but this viewpoint does have some challenges. And one of the challenges is, despite the picture I just showed you, it is very complicated. One of the complexities is that there isn't just one return of Christ, there are two. He will come at the rapture and at the second coming. So it's, it's really kind of the third coming then if, if you look at it that way. It also means that there will be three, possibly four different resurrections depending on what, you know, how, how this is interpreted and two or possibly three times of judgment. This seems, to, this seems to not align with uh, verses in the Bible that refer to the resurrection or the judgment. So there, there's some complexity here which, which uh, needs to be acknowledged. This is a more full drawing, which I'm not gonna go through in detail, of, of one scholar who's tried to fit this all together um, with, with the timeline and everything. It's, um, it, it, there's, a lot of detail here, which comes from a certain interpretation of the Bible that that not everyone uh, agrees with. So it's complex, but secondly, the the one issue is that the rapture is not explicitly taught in the Bible. And this might come as a surprise to some of you because this is an article of faith uh, in a pre-tribulation viewpoint, but 
There is no verse that you can point to that actually says this will happen. It's inferred. As one scholar says, the rapture is found in the white space between chapter three and chapter four of Revelation. Finally, uh, the pre-tribulational view is very recent. Now this doesn't make it wrong, but it, it's been around for only about 200 years, and if you believe uh, a Christian doctrine that wasn't believed for the first 1800 years, it does invite a little bit more scrutiny. So I, I would say that's, that, that is a challenge. Again, it doesn't make it wrong. The second viewpoint here, I'm, <clears throat> I'm gonna try and go through these quickly. The second viewpoint is called post-tribulation, and some call this the, the classic interpretation because it does date back to the early church fathers, and there is a lot of overlap between pre-trib and post-trib. For example, post-trib, post-trib point of view does view the Mark 13 prophecies as not yet having been fulfilled. They will be fulfilled at some time in the future, and so there is a literal great tribulation coming it might be seven years, but the, the, typically a, a post-tribber is not so hung up on it being that exact number. The big difference between post-trib and pre-trib is that the church will remain on earth during the tribulation. So they would reject the idea of a rapture. The viewpoint is that Jesus will come back one more time in great glory at the end of the tribulation and finish his business finally and completely at that time. And that looks like this. At some point, the tribulation starts and it ends with Christ's return. So that's a little bit simpler. But what are the challenges to this point of view? Now, the main one that I see here is that with the tree pre-trib, or the, excuse me, the post-trib model, we can't expect Jesus to return at any moment because according to this view, the events of the tribulation have to take place first. And yet the Bible consistently says Jesus' return is something that could happen at any moment, like a thief in the night, and we're supposed to watch for it. it it's hard to make sense of this if specific events must take place first. In, in a real sense, the post-tribber doesn't, need to watch because they can say Jesus won't be coming tomorrow because the tribulation hasn't happened. Third and lastly is a view called preterism. And I do apologize for all these goofy theological terms. Um, I, I would have found better names for them if I could, but this is just what they're called, so bear with me on this. Preterism, or preterists say that almost all of the end time prophecies in the entire Bible have already been fulfilled in the first century. That is prophecies in Daniel and Ezekiel and Mark 13, Zechariah, and even Revelation. It's all done, it's all locked, except maybe those last ones with, with Jesus' return. So those other, events, those other events that we sometimes think of as coming at the end, like like the Antichrist and the beast and, and the abomination that brings desolation. That's all done. That's fulfilled. There is no further fulfillment expected. So, for example, a preterist would say when Revelation talks about that metaphorical city, Babylon the Great, that's going to be destroyed, well, that refers to Rome 
and Rome's been destroyed. And the beast, well, that was Nero, or one of the other emperors, and the, sign, the, the, the mark of the beast was his image stamped on the coins that they had to trade. It's, it's viewing all of that as being complete. The extension to that is there is no great tribulation. A preterist would say all that imagery and mark and revelation, that was symbolic of what would happen in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. And, and Jeff talked about that last week. It was awful for those people there, but that was all it was talking about. But by extension, Jesus can return at any time in a preterist model because there are no prophecies that are left to be fulfilled. So what are the challenges here? Well, one of them is, I believe this is a really difficult interpretation. We're looking at Mark 13 today and it seems to be a jarring disconnect in that, in that chapter. Let me show you what I've done. I went and I marked all the verses in red that a preterist would say applies to AD 70 and the verses in green that apply to sometime 2000 or 3000 years later. To me, it seems a little bit inconsistent to read the Bible in this way, that, that these verses apply to that specific thing and then we zoom out 2,000 years and then zoom back. I could be wrong, that's, that's, my, that's my impression. Uh, secondly, preterists, for their, their system to hold together, typically require that the book of Revelation was written about 25 years earlier than we think it was. I don't want to dive into the details of this, but we have very good evidence that, that Revelation was written around 95 or 96 AD. A preterist would say, no, it's got to be in the late 60s. That, that doesn't seem to match with, with what we know about the history of the Bible. And lastly, again, this is, this is, you know, this is all just my, my assessment here. It doesn't seem to have as much relevance for us today with, with that point of view. So, I suspect by now some of you are thinking, great, what does this mean for us and do we really need to care? Well, I think we do and I'll tell you why. If we go back to the text in Mark 13, you'll, you'll notice that Jesus spends a lot of time talking about things that will come but he's also telling his disciples and us how to respond to it. In fact, if, if you look at the, the amount of text that's taken up in Jesus instructing his disciples on what to do, it's between a half and a third of the whole chapter. This isn't like the book of Revelation, which, which reads like a movie of stuff that's going to happen. This is instruction combined with, with, with prophecy. Jesus says, don't be alarmed. He says, don't worry about what you're going to say. Learn this lesson. But most of all, Jesus says, watch. The, the Greek word that Jesus uses here is blepo. And if that sounds familiar, it, it should, because Jeff talked about this word a few months back and described how important it was to, to Jesus, how he used this word an awful lot. Uh, blepo doesn't mean look, as in, hey, look at that. It means 
watch and perceive and understand and discern and pay attention to. It's an imperative word that, that it, almost, it almost means pay attention. And Jesus uses this word in, in this chapter more often than any other chapter in Mark, not just because it's important material, but because he's, he's saying, watch what is going to happen. The disciples ask him, when will these things happen? Jesus replies, no one knows. Not the the angels, not the son, only God in heaven. Blepo, watch, pay attention. Jesus says there will be false messiahs and false prophets that will come and try and deceive you. Some will even perform miracles. Blepo, watch, pay attention. He says, nation will rise against nation. There will be wars and famines and earthquakes. Blepo, watch, don't be deceived. Back when I was young and I had a a full head of hair, I attended a Bible college out in Abbotsford. And my friends and I would sometimes joke that we're not pre-trib or post-trib, we're pan-trib and it's all gonna pan out in the end. I know, pretty hilarious, right? All joking aside, that really is not the attitude that Jesus is telling us to take toward the subject. Jesus didn't say, don't worry about it. It'll all be fine. In fact, he was saying, you need to do the exact opposite. You need to watch and pay attention. He was emphatic with his followers about that. And do you really think the disciples knew what Jesus was talking about in this verse? based on how well they understood some of his previous teaching, I would venture to say they probably didn't have a clue. And Jesus knew that, and still he said, watch, pay attention. So the question I would have is, what is your attitude toward the the end times and to Jesus' return? Is this even on your radar screen? Yeah, this is difficult material but we haven't been given the option to ignore it. When you learn to drive a car, a good driving instructor will tell you to be looking 100 or 300 yards down the road. You don't look at the road right in front of your vehicle, you're looking out in the distance because when you have your goal in sight, your steering and your your small adjustments as you go along, they flow naturally from from when you know where you're going. And it's really the same for us. How would your life look different if you're expecting Jesus to return at any time, if you're actively watching for him the way he tells us to? Be on your guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and he puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Let me read that last verse. One more time. What I say to you, I say to everyone. Watch. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is all meant for our instruction and edification. And I pray that you would teach us today what what you have for us in your instructions to the disciples in the book of Mark. And I pray that each of us would leave here with with a better understanding of what you're, you're calling us to as far as an expectation of your return. Amen.